0: Welcome to my den. How would you respond if someone said diversity, equity, and inclusion is dead? Well, if you're like the person I shared that with the other day, you probably had your eyes go wide open, your mouth became agape. You might have uttered a little shocked sigh because this concept of DEI that we've been talking about for several years now and that Gen Z has seemingly been driving is something I and my guest today firmly believe is dead. I'm going to let Kate tell you why she makes this claim and has research to back it up. However, before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about her. Kate McGregor M- Kate McGregor Sorry Kate is the director of People Science and Innovation at With You With Me where she leads the global research team that's developing the company's new tool called the Potential Platform, which is a recruitment psychometric testing software. Now, Kate is a neurodivergent woman, and she's currently in Canada. She just moved from Australia to Canada, and their team is global. They're one of the fastest growing tech companies in the world and uh, you'll hear why today. We're going to talk about everything from why DEI is dead to how to create real systemic, systematic change uh, toward better DEI initiatives in your organization, all the way over to psychometric analysis and using AI plus psychometric testing as a tool to solve recruitment bias. Kate is a wealth of information and knowledge. Now, before we get into this very very educational conversation, let me share with you a story. Put yourself for a moment in the shoes of a woman named Rosa. She's a new graduate 2324 and she's a first generation immigrant from Honduras. Now, Rosa made it through college, she's so excited to start her first position, and uh, she's out there looking but she keeps getting these recruiters who DM her and email her um, from all of these big companies, exciting companies. But she seems to notice a trend. All their titles are diversity recruiter. Now, Rosa lands a few of these incredible interviews, only to find out afterwards, she never had a shot at those jobs. Instead, she was given an interview simply to fill a quota as a Latina woman. Now, if you were in Rosa's
1: shoes, how would
0: you feel? Well, today's conversation with Kate McGregor is going to unpack this story, Rosa's story, and more as we talk about this very often sensitive, political often conversation about diversity and inclusion and all the ways this plays out in recruitment, bias, hiring, and so much more. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Kate McGregor. Buckle up your seats or your time machines, if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Kate McGregor. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. All right, before we dive in, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Analog Academy. If you're a leader or a business owner and you want to crack the code on recruiting employees under age 30, be sure to sign up for our free masterclass we hold on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, where we give you tactical strategies to make you a top native digital employer. You can register for that at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit and now hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing Kate McGregor hey Kate hey. I'm so glad to have you on here today what what's been I'm the re- highlight of your day so far
1: I'm really excited to be here this is probably going to be it if I'm honest I'm uh, really really looking forward to having this conversation with you today Hannah oh that's
0: awesome high bar there on for a Friday Fry yay yay Well, I'm so excited to get into this conversation. And I, I have to ask you because something you said the first time we talked really stuck with me. And it was this idea, you you said it really bl- bluntly, which I loved. You basically said diversity, equity, and inclusion is dead, if I recall correctly. And I ju- it just made me want to ask you, what do you mean by that? Just help me understand what you're seeing and, and what you mean by that statement.
1: Yeah, so obviously that's a a very intense conversation and a very intense comment to make. And yes, absolutely, I'm blunt. That's the Australian in me. I just apologize in advance if I am blunt in this conversation. That's the oh, way I work. we love this. We love this. <laughs> Nothing is off limits. I uh, love it. So um, in my... In my opinion, and in my personal belief as someone who's had 10 plus years in human resources, the traditional approach of DEI or DNI, as it's referred to in Australia, this concept is dead. And what I mean by that is the concept of setting initiatives that never actually get achieved um, or make any kind of impact is dead. The idea around um, consistently doing it the same way and, and, and expecting a different outcome is dead and as we as employers and the you know the wider recruitment market tend um tend to see a shift as gen z for example comes in as neurodivergent talent comes in as more and more of those underrepresented communities are fighting for a seat at the table and there is such a a talent shortage the concept around traditional dni Needs to change and how we think about it, the mindset with which we approach diversity and inclusion needs to change um, and so you know promisingly enough, the recruitment industry holistically is starting to to really see those underrepresented groups um, are able to offer more than they ever thought they could before and I think the thing is as we progress into this kind of unknown as it were around how do we attract the right talent into our businesses, we need to be open-minded in making sure it's not just a tick in the box, which is what it traditionally has been. And I think a lot of the reason behind why DEI and the DEI initiatives or DNI initiatives aren't getting the traction that they probably should is because for many people, the mindset is, well, if we just do it, then it's done. And it's, I've ticked the box and I don't have to worry about any of the rest of you know, trying to do all of this stuff, if that makes sense. And so, what's interesting is in Canada, the federal government has put a mandate out of a five percent quota on increased, uh, sorry, a five percent increase on the quote um, on a DEI initiative. And the problem with that is that isn't going to make any meaningful change. What we're talking about here is a requirement for a systemic change in how we think and respond to DEI. So this isn't just a tick in a box exercise. This is about recognizing people for who they are and the value that they bring to an organization. And the interesting part about that is the easiest way to do that is actually through aptitudinal and psychometrics assessments. Okay, I
0: can't, I can't wait to dig more into that because I, first of all, Getting to the solution to this is, I think, something hardly anyone is talking about, right? Because mm. what what I seem to witness, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, but whether it's all over LinkedIn or our HR conferences and conventions, the conversation tends, at least from what I've seen, to stay really surface level. It's this idea, like you were talking about, it's, it's a check in the box and even if the people who are most passionate about DEI are you know minorities themselves or they're really trying to create change what i've at least seen is it ends up turning away so many people within organizations or rightfully so some of these these folks who are who have a bad taste in their mouth from the DEI initiatives are recognizing they're just not doing much like they're simply just not doing much it's 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 a tick. Like you said, it's a checkbox. So I want to ask you just getting deeper into that before we jump to a solution. Why do you think so many companies are just kind of throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks when it comes to DEI? Like, why is this such a surface level sort of initiative instead of a, a systemic change? Why is systemic change not happening?
1: I don't think it's for a lack of trying. Let's really be clear with that. DEI and DEI initiatives come from a place of understanding that this is a fundamental need within the requirements of what we we have as a, as an organization, or or what we have as a, as an industry, or or even as employers in general. There there is absolutely a need for this. That's not what what I'm saying. DEI is absolutely a requirement. What I mean by the need for a systemic change here is. So With You With Me has just released its DEI report um, that we've done for Canada. And one of the things that we found was only 19% of employers actually use psychometrics aptitudinal assessment. DEI itself and what that actually represents is important from understanding how those minority groups actually behave towards an organization. So the change and the need for the systemic change is happening. The problem has been when you do the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result, it's the definition of insanity. But the problem with it is there's no one actually showing our organizations out there that genuinely have a a good place in their heart that they're trying to do these initiatives and trying to make meaningful change and trying to, leverage these underutilized groups there's no one showing them how or no one teaching them different ways or they themselves are so caught up in the trying to achieve what they're trying to achieve that they haven't actually taken a step back and looked at it holistically as a complete function or a complete process instead of just a one one initiative one initiative one initiative there isn't a holistic view of how DEI works and where it is and where it isn't working. And the other piece, has anyone actually asked anyone from any of these underrepresented or DEI-related communities how they'd like to be employed, how they'd like to be interviewed? Because I can guarantee you that those conversations are not being had either. So true,
0: so true. And you told me last time we talked that you have a a pretty personal connection to this from being a, a neurodivergent leader so what what is your connection to this and and how ha, like what differences have you seen between say being in australia versus being in canada being a neurodivergent leader um if anything
1: yes good question so yes you are correct i am neurodivergent i have adhd um was diagnosed as a child I uh, didn't really think that much of it. And then kind of as I've gotten older and older, I was like,
0: oh, this makes me more sense. Mm.
1: Um, so neuro, neurodivergent, neurodiversity, um, neurotypical, it, they're all terms that are thrown around a lot uh, at the moment, particularly given that there is a lot of focus on, you know, solving this quote unquote talent shortage and how people leverage them. I get really passionate about DEI in particular because as a neurodivergent person, I can't tell you how many times I've gone through a recruitment process or I've gone through an interview process and I have been very passionate about what I'm doing. And that's that has been labeled as me being overly emotional. So that's been very difficult. And then on top of that, you know, organizations in general don't understand things. And when they don't understand things, they have a very bad habit of putting those things in a box that makes sense to them or labeling those things. And what I mean by things is um, people. We label people because it helps us process the information and understand something that we don't necessarily understand ourselves. We do not seek to understand the thing that is in front of us or try to educate ourselves. Now, whether that's a lack of time or whether it's just we don't. We didn't realize that we needed to do that. Um, I mean, that's that's up to the individual to figure that figure out. But the point that I'm getting at here is, if a DEI initiative is done right, it should start with education. It should start with a conversation around how do we recruit neurodivergent, youth, Indigenous, veteran, military spouse individuals. You're- in a way that is friendly to them, not in a way that suits us and is easy for us as HR professionals. And that is where I think DEI starts to go wrong because there isn't an open-mindedness to trying it a different way and seeing what happens. We just kind of plod along because that's how it's always been done and it's easier to do it that way. And the human mind, from a psychological point of view, is never going to like change. But sometimes change is absolutely required to make a meaningful impact in our organizations.
0: I love how you're describing this. And I i actually was just on the phone with a good friend a couple days ago who's also a neurodivergent leader. And she actually left her previous employer after what, you know, it was mostly a positive experience. But when it came to this particular topic, which... I don't know what it's like to be, to have ADHD. So I want to ask you in a second to help walk us through kind of your thought process and a day in the life. Um, But she was sharing with me that there was such a lack of understanding about how her brain worked in the department she worked in that she, uh, there, there came just a breaking point. She, you know, everyone assumed kind of like you were describing a second ago about, you know, it comes across, what did you say? Over enthusiasm? How did how does that come across? Overly emotional. Overly emotional. Yes. So very similar words she was using to describe this is, you know, her passion would come across as overzealous, perhaps, or not professional. Anyway, just there are so many challenges that I had never really even thought about. So tell me from your perspective, Kate. Like, what is it like? Just what what's a day in the life like? And you don't have to, you know. We, don't tell me <laughs> deepest, darkest secrets here, but you know what I <laughs> I would love to understand what, what is something I might approach as a neurotypical person? What's something I might approach that you would approach differently? And how can I better understand how you might approach that topic or subject or, or way of doing things?
1: So the first thing I'm going to say here, and I really want to make sure that this is clear, how I respond as somebody who is a neurodivergent and identifies as having ADHD is extremely different to how anybody else who has ADHD will respond. So I just want to make that really clear because my ADHD is not the same as everybody else's. And that is in itself a problem to start with because everybody assumes that how it presents for one person is the exact same for how it presents to another. It's actually a spectrum and it it is. Very different from one person to another. The concept around neurodivergent individuals having superpowers, that may be correct for some people, absolutely may be correct for some people. For me, it's a huge part of the reason why I have been as successful as I have been in my life. For others, it's debilitating. They quite literally cannot function as adults. And so that in itself is really key. How I approach different things depends on the situation. So I'm a highly creative person and how I look at solving problems is very different to how a neurotypical person will look at solving problems. Context is really important to me. Um, Language is really important to me. The physical words that come out of your mouth is important to me. And the reason for that is how my brain processes that information is very specific. So if you say a word that I'm like, this doesn't make sense and I don't understand what that actually means, my brain stops and can't get past that piece. I I can't physically move past the, I don't understand what you mean by this. And so I will always ask clarifying questions around that because I like to solve problems. So I am a very curious person. I'm very, very open-minded and I'm very, very extroverted. So I spend a lot of time engaging with people on asking questions that helps me understand the problem that they've got so that we can solve that problem together. How that differs, I suppose, from a neurotypical person is really hard to define because I don't really know how a neurotypical person's brain works because I've never been neurotypical. So when we talk about, you know, neurotypical versus neurodivergent and how we empower those people to be successful, saying phrases like, why can't you just get this? Or you just need to do this is actually so demeaning and disenfranchising that any neurodivergent person that you say that to is probably going to stop in their trucks and not be able to move past what you've said. Because in their mind, they've been trying to do that thing that you've just asked them to do without you even realizing that you've just said that to them. So for example, um, in a position that I held a long time ago, I had someone say to me, why can't you just understand this? And my response to them is, I'm asking you these questions to understand this. I'm not asking these questions to be difficult. So it's really important that when we engage neurodivergent individuals, the language we use towards them is less around frustration and more around understanding where they're coming from because our brains as neurodivergent individuals are quite literally wired completely differently to how neurotypical individuals' brains are wired. Now, that's actually a good thing because if you give a neurodivergent person a complex problem, they can usually pull it apart and put it back together again and give you a solution and do it relatively quickly. I tend to find in my experience with neurodivergent individuals, and I will only speak to my experience because again, how this works for one person is very different for how it works for another. I just want to really drive that point home. Um, what I found in my experience with working with neurodivergent individuals is if you help them create an environment where they are comfortable. So as an employer, as a leader, as a manager, if you help them create an environment where they are comfortable and they feel psychologically safe to come and have conversations with you around the things that are challenging for them or the things that are difficult or anything that makes them feel uncomfortable in any way, shape or form, you will actually find that neurodivergent people tend to be far more loyal, far more productive and far more engaged in the organization and the work that they are doing because they feel safe and because not a lot of employers and not a lot of managers will go to those lengths to actually help those individuals get to that place.
0: I'm just curious, has with you, with me done any research around that sort of like what it takes to get a neurodivergent professional to that place of psychological safety or comfort where they do deliver those results?
1: So that's what we're currently working on at the moment. Okay. Uh, so obviously with you, with me is a, is very much a neurodivergent friendly employer. We're actually, I I sit as the chair of our neurodivergent steering committee committee or neurodiversity steering committee is what I should say. My apologies. Um, That steering committee is in the process of basically creating a completely separate recruitment process for our neurodivergent community members and also advising and training our organization on how we should be responding to neurodivergent talent. The next step of that is a bunch of research that's going to come out of my team, which is the research innovation team around how we best engage neurodivergent talent and actually putting some rigor around neurodivergent talent you know in these types of organizations you know could benefit from this type of engagement the assessment that with you with me does so we have an assessment it's called potential and it's part of our discover product that assessment actually gives a report to an individual and it's not just for the individual who completes the assessment that report is also sent to hiring managers What with you with me is in the process of doing is actually educating our hiring managers on neurodivergent tendencies and traits that could appear in those reports, and actually how to engage and ensure that those neurodiverse people are not worse off as a result of completing a psychometrics or an aptitudinal assessment. And that also ties into our assessment itself and the work that my team and I are doing around ensuring that everything else being equal. A neurodivergent and a neurotypical people a person taking the assessment should get the same result, and that is something that is very important to us.
0: I love that so much, and in fact, I want to say you, specifically you as a leader and also with you with me, as one of the only organizations that I know of who's taking a, a lead on this and saying we want to make sure that neurodiverse professionals are being treated the same way in the recruiting process. We're actually backing it with science, with data and with tech. And that is so exciting. And, you know, it reminds me, I i don't know if you read Malcolm Gladwell. I love his his work. And I actually just finished reading Blink for the second time. I don't know if you're familiar with with this book, but it is amazing. He has a section where he talks about how When I think this was back in the 60s, when women were not very common in professions like being professional horn players, like in inside of orchestras or bands, like it was mostly men. Women were kind of they were hired for the what they called the more feminine instruments like violin or flute. But, Mm -hmm. you know, what woman could blow a horn as well as a man? Like, how could they possibly have breath control? Well, something that they did, which was so interesting, the I believe it was the New York Philharmonic started to have blind interviews where they would they would pull a curtain down in the interview process. They'd have the experts or the hiring professionals on one side, they'd have their candidates play on the other side. When they started these blind interviews, this was incredible to me. I, I hope I quote this statistic correctly. It was something like ninety percent women got hired versus before they had the blind interview process, hardly any women were hired into the brass or the percussion section. And these these hiring managers, there was even one point where a woman stepped up to play the horn and they had like 50 candidates and she was number 13 or 14. She was so good. The guy on the other side said, that's who I want and sent all the other candidates home, just didn't even listen to them they pulled back the curtain and saw that it was a woman. And just he was like, oh, I can't hire her. (laughs) Like She was so good that, that he sent everyone else home. And that was the reaction. So my point is, we face in today's world in 2022, we face very similar sort of blink judgments about candidates that we're hiring. And of course, those are it's no longer men and women. But now it could be a neurodiverse professional versus a neurotypical professional or whatever spectrum you want to you know throw on there and um, anyway that illustration was really powerful for me and it, you know when as you were describing this you know the work that with you with me is doing that's the type of thing that's coming to my mind is like wh- what is the equivalent of that nowadays and how can we help solve that problem
1: so cognitive ability Which can be measured by a psychometrics or an aptitudinal assessment, is the most important predictor for job performance. And it isn't widely adopted by Canadian organizations. That's that's the solution. Transparently, like I I know that seems really simple, but it genuinely is. We as a as organization, as leaders, as HR professionals, we need to be thinking about other ways of assessing our people than just a resume or reference checks or, you know, um, whatever university degree they've done or qualification they have. There is more to a person than just a two-page document. And we need to be spending time to understand what that data actually looks like and aligning those people to the roles that we have based on data. It can't be a hunch anymore because we're leaving fantastic talent on the table because we're following rigid and inflexible hiring processes that don't allow people to show their true and full potential.
0: I want to get into more of what this looks like, like beginner level. So take take me through <laughs> because I know so much of your work is research and innovation and design and, and all these things. So take take me to level zero. What do you mean by psychometrics, and why is that? Why why are psychometrics different from, say, all the other forms of testing of whether it's personality or um, career aptitude or any of those other sorts of testing someone's potential?
1: I use the term psychometrics and aptitude interchangeably, and that's just because I do aptitudinal assessment. Psychometrics is a scary word if you don't understand what it means. I'm going to say aptitudinal assessment because that a lot of people can actually. Digest what that actually means. And I appreciate psychometric can be quite a scary word. So, aptitudinal assessments are important for us as we continue to develop societally, but also culturally for two reasons. One, gone are the days uh, of reading a, a CV and, and basically saying, Yep, cool, you're, you're suitable for the role. Those days are very quickly becoming obsolete. And the reason they're becoming obsolete is because We can't find the talent that we want. What would be, and this is just a hypothesis that I have at the moment. I haven't, I haven't been able to test it. Um, my little reset brain getting all excited. (laughs) Uh, so one of the things that I think is that if you took a person and gave just their CV to a recruiter and you took that same person and you put them through aptitudinal skills matching and behavioural and traits assessments and gave the, the recruiter this, that data, guarantee you if they read the resume, they're probably going to be 65 75%. Yeah, okay, this person could align. I look at that data and say 80 to 90% certainty, this person absolutely aligns to this role. All things being equal, everything else being equal, that will give you a far less biased opinion because you remove things like gender, university degrees, you remove things like where they went to high school, even the name on a resume can can cause unconscious bias. We know it. We see it. We see it all the time. People do it. I've been a victim or, or guilty of doing it in my professional career and I'll own that because it was never really a thing that I intended to set out to do, but it was pointed out to me years ago by a very good friend of mine and I was like, oh shit, I am doing that. Well- Probably shouldn't be that. <laughs> um, but the point that I'm getting at here, Hannah, is aptitudinal and psychometrics assessments allow us to look at a person based on their data. It removes bias. It isn't about making that person only be numbers on a page because there's so much more to a person. But if you think of being about things like cultural fit, aptitudinal assessment, learning style, personality assessments, And you combine all of that together in an alignment with a skills and competencies assessment and a behaviors and traits assessment, you would quite literally be able to match and map your entire organization based purely on data and remove any subconscious bias towards a person being put into a position or not, because the data says so.
0: Are there any organizations doing this 100% successfully?
1: No, because the assessments themselves are still being built. And that's what with you, with me is all about. And so, so you, you asked me, and I remember having this conversation to you and you you said, so what's the, what's the goal for you in the research and innovation position? And I remember saying to you, I was like, my job, my job is to work out what a job looks like in 2050 and how to get it. And I fundamentally believe that when we are talking in the 20 years time from now, assessments will be what will be used as a, as a way for people to be matched against roles. And the CV, which was written by Leonardo da Vinci in 1462, will finally be obsolete because the document itself, whilst it has purpose, I understand that, is an outdated tool that doesn't actually bring value to an organization's ability to recognise diverse, equitable, employees and be inclusive in their recruitment processes.
0: I can't tell Sorry, I you I how so excited about it. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not the only one. And you're the one actually <laughs> doing the data and analytics. So how much more exciting does your day to day have to be than me just sitting over here going, huh, I wonder if, you know, this hypothesis that I have might actually work. And OK, let me let me bounce this idea off of you, because maybe this is okay. in alignment with what you're talking about and maybe it's not. But. Speaking of Malcolm Gladwell, because I've been on literally a reading kick of Malcolm Gladwell, he released a book a couple years ago called Talking to Strangers. And there's a section of the book where basically his premise is we're really bad at detecting liars, right? Like a a human being is very, very bad. Uh, this was the hypothesis, and what ended up being the conclusion. We're very, very bad at detecting liars. It's literally a coin toss if someone's lying to us. If we can tell if they're actually lying, and one of the examples that he gave, and follow follow me on this journey here because it will come back to recruiting. But one of the examples that he gave was there in I believe it was in New York. The um, there was a test and an experiment that was done where AI just. Basic basic AI like the very basic of basic of basics <laughs> like looking at basic data about someone's like past criminal history, their gender, their like what part of the city they lived in basically they were the experiment was let's take thousands of people who were on trial for what you know for felonies and let's determine if a judge can do a better job or if AI can do a better job of determining if a person should be let out on bail. That was the premise. Okay.
1: This is cool, All right? You've got yeah, That definitely
0: has my attention. (laughs) (laughs) I was fascinated when he was talking about this, right? Because you would think like the whole whole American justice system is built on the idea that someone could get a fair trial, right? Get a fair trial in front of a human judge and in front of, of a jury, right? Because humans are supposed to be good about detecting if humans are lying or if they might, if they, if a criminal has had a change of heart, right? Here's what the results found, which is shocking. The AI was given the very basic of basic facts about this person. They didn't have any, the AI had no context for what the crime actually was or Uh, what type of rehabilitation this person had been through, any of that. All they were given was basic demographic information about the person. The AI predicted with, I believe it was four times the accuracy of the judge who had spent an hour or more in the courtroom with the person, if the criminal let out on bail would actually commit another crime. The AI, with basic data, predicted, and I'll have to look back at these numbers, I believe it was with four times as much accuracy. So here I am sitting like listening to this thinking, if AI can be given basic information and has no bias, right? And then you have a human being who is subjected to every kind of bias. I mean, one one example Malcolm gave in the book was there was a, a teenager, maybe like 19, I guess he was probably closer to 20. Anyway, young man, he pull, he attempted to kill his girlfriend and the trigger misfired, the gun misfired. So he didn't actually end up shooting her. Well, he goes, you know, to court and goes through his whole trial. It had been a few months since this happened, attempted murder. And he, he shows, you know, to the judge, he's really sorrowful. He had never had, you know, a criminal background before. This was his first offense. What the judge failed to notice is even though this guy didn't kill anybody, he had Tempted to kill his girlfriend, the judge did not pick up on this. He thought that the young man was remorseful, that he was had a change of heart. Guy walks out on bail, kills his girlfriend the next day. Mm-hmm. Basically, the point being, our ability as humans to judge another person, uh, whether they're lying or just just understand what their skills or whatever might be, are so subjected to every single influence, whether it's our background or the, the impression we have of the person that we're talking to based on how they look, whatever those factors might be, are, we have so many biases, and we're, we're never going to be able to wrap our head around where all those biases might come from. So yes. here's my thought, pulling this back to recruiting. My supposition the other day, I was just thinking about this. What if we could essentially remove all biases from the hiring process and, and essentially achieve the equivalent of this justice system experiment in our hiring. So, what if AI had access to data about a person that was completely stripped of all the biases? It was quality of work, projects, or experiences. What if it was just basic data? What if that AI actually could do a better job about predicting a person's success in our company than if we had three rounds of interviews with them and a panel? So, anyway, that was my shower thought. <laughs> <laughs> So, anyway, I'll, I will want to lay that before you and ask: How similar to that sort of description is this idea of psychometric testing and analysis? And where are there differences or similarities that we might glean?
1: Uh great question. Uh, it's a very in de- intense, in-depth question. So, just give me a second to like process the information there. <laughs> um, so there are absolutely tools out there that. Specifically, leverage artificial intelligence to align people to jobs, etc. There is a problem with that. You remove the humanity. So, whilst absolutely we've been talking about bias here and it's absolutely a problem, there's still a level of humanity that comes along with that. And so, AI itself is a really cool thing and it's becoming more and more progressive. But what we're starting to see is government and also big business is concerned about the fact that AI isn't necessarily the, the be-all and end-all and by removing the human factor of it completely so that it is simply the robot deciding whether you are suitable or not does not actually help us grow or drive or build ourselves as human. It is a tool we can leverage but it is not the solution. The solution to how we become more equitable in our employment opportunities, become more diverse with our staff, be more inclusive in what we're doing is to understand the person more holistically. We can leverage AI for things like internal mobility, succession planning, job alignment, for any change management pieces, digital transformation, all of that. We can absolutely leverage AI, but AI is not the solution to recruitment for two reasons. If we recruit specifically and only using an algorithm, we need to make sure that that algorithm can capture all of the information because I agree in the terms of take out the bias and let's assess someone from from that point of view. What we're also saying here is that information needs to be shared Organizations are not at a point where they will intercompany share performance information. It simply won't happen because everybody is afraid of the big man with the stick being the judge in this case and them potentially getting in trouble for sharing information that they should not be sharing. So actually, the solution here is about understanding the types of people you have in your applicant pools, creating a process for those applicants to go through it in an inclusive way that allows them to show who they are as a person. And what do I mean by inclusive? It's not just put them in a room and get them to talk to you or have them have a conversation with you instead. It's about consulting them and asking them. The solution to us thinking about how we make talent more accessible is about the, It's actually about the prospect of creating it. So the biggest issue that we have right now is the talent shortage. You and I know it. Everyone, every Tom, Dick and Harry knows it. The problem is that we as a society are still requiring people to go to university. Why? Why do they have to go to university to to, to do four years of a degree when they could probably do a short course, let's say 150 hours worth of training, and then get some on the job experience and mentor? The reason that we keep going down this university track is because it's easy. Because we assume that the universities know what they're talking about. Now, let's be really clear here for a second. Most universities, and I love them, I have three degrees. Trust me when I say this, I single-handedly funded at least a course development from my university degrees. The point that I'm getting at here is most universities are six to 12 months behind industry. Six to 12 months behind industry. and in an industry like technology, you're too slow. You come out of a four-year degree having done cybersecurity and the stuff you learn at uni is not relevant. So, so so what do they need to do? Well then they need to go and do more training and more accreditations and more money into, into this situation. And it's not actually giving them any value. It's also not giving us the talent that we need as employers. It's just adding to the talent wheel. Oh, sorry, the education wheel. And the problem with that, and sorry, I'm getting very, like, passionate, my hand's going everywhere. Don't ever
0: um, apologize for that, please. We love this. <laughs> I love it.
1: um The problem that we run into when we, when we stop looking at other ways to build and grow and develop talent is we get stuck in the same mindset with the recruitment issue. And so, wouldn't we be better off to just build the talent we actually want? So, with you, with me, we're all about human asset creation. Talent is no longer a commodity. You can't buy, sell, trade. It's not that anymore. It's those days are long gone. COVID has taught us as employers that we need to t- treat our staff like assets. It's as simple as that. And the best way to do that is if you need net new talent. We're talking about people that you need to bring into your industry, build them, put them through a short course, and then spend the time and energy actually growing and developing them inside your organization instead of spending way too much money trying to attract the unicorn, build the unicorn, or build baby unicorns that will grow into the unicorn.
0: I cannot tell you how much I love this and how much, how refreshing it is to talk to someone who gets this because here, here's what I've been saying for years, Kate, and I would love your thoughts on this and to hear more about what you guys are doing with this 150 hour short talent, short training, up, whatever you're calling it, I would love to learn more about this because this is the future. One of the, the things that we talk about on this show, and I think I mentioned this to you last time, That are the first time we spoke, is this idea number one that similar to neurodivergent professionals that Gen Z or a native digital generation literally has their brain wired differently because of literally how we grew up and how connect. It's almost like being plugged into the Matrix, for lack of a better way of describing it. But it literally created kids whose brains function completely differently, right? And mm-hmm. so when, when that type of, of person, that type of student who is used to learning in terms of short-form content, in, in terms of challenges or competitions, when we suddenly enter the workplace as a native digital, natively digital human, and we're, we're, we're told that the only way to upskill or the only way to learn is to go sit through boring lectures, eight-hour workshops, uh, you know, keynote speeches. We just, that just doesn't connect. Like literally the neurons are just not connecting. And so I actually had on the show a couple of weeks ago, I had Ted Dintersmith. And uh, Ted was the, back in the 90s, he was the top performing venture capitalist of 95 and 96. So the man like amassed millions of dollars. And then he spent, he has spent the last 25 years pouring all that money back into our education system trying to fix this problem of the fact that this this is just isn't clicking. Like the way that we educate kids is not clicking with what employers need. Well, after spending decades, literal decades, trying to solve this problem from the inside, he's now like. What are, what are we missing? And we had this conversation about the native digital mindset and he goes, oh my gosh, this is exactly what's missing from the school system is this idea of native digital, the native digital way of learning is not matching with the native analog way of training, of leading, of coaching, whatever that might be. And that mismatch is creating so much headache for employers, millions of dollars lost. It's creating disconnects between you know, young staff and and their, their leaders who are much older than them. The point being, I, when I came across this article, I believe you sent me on this 150 hours of training or getting someone ready, actually with the, you know, with the with the fast moving timeline of tech or business or whatever it might be, it made so much sense. So I want to hear just more about how this thing works. What if so if if I'm a a student, I guess just start me off at the beginning. What's what people, what age group, what um level of education are you guys positing that can be trained in 150 hours to be ready for a tech job?
1: So this all comes back to the notion of human asset creation, which is what I was talking about before. And so this is this is with you with me's product potential holistically. So the aptitudinal assessment that I spoke to you about before, the psychometric, the culture, the learning style, the personality—they all come together to give us a report that helps us align individuals into um, roles or training within our within our platform. They then go on and complete <clears throat> and complete that training. Now, that training for With You, With Me is very specific to the digital space. That, that's our bread and butter. That's our niche. That's what we focus on. It's also where most of the demand is within the market at the moment. is digital technology skills. Um, they will, those individuals will then go through and do 150 to 200 hours of training, depending on the course, depending on you know, how much time and effort they put into it. For some people, they want to put more in. For others, they just get it straight away and it's very quick. Um, from there, they're then what we would refer to as an entry level talent person. So an entry-level data analyst, an entry-level cybersecurity analyst. We have found um as a result of our kind of <laughs> pardon me, sorry. Um we have found as a result of our five years of operation, almost uh yeah, five five years of operation that um as we, If we train someone and then put them in a work environment in a supportive company where they have a mentor and somebody to actually guide them through what it is that they're doing, they're 75% more likely to be successful than a university graduate. They're also far more likely to be, um, how do I put it, they're far more likely to stay with the company from a retention point of view than somebody who doesn't have that opportunity and there are two reasons for that one you're intellectually challenging those individuals and giving them the safe space to do that two you as a company have just invested in some in in them becoming a better version of themselves whether humanity likes it or not we're naturally a loyal you know species we are we normally mate for life. It's usually monogamous, although if not, that's, you know, do you know what I mean? Like it's we as a society, as a species, we're a genuinely a loyal, um, I'm trying to find the words. Uh, we're generally loyal. I know and what, what I mean. And where I'm going with this is by spending the time and the energy and the money and whatever else, by investing in your employees, you actually end up driving retention strategies without even realizing it. If l d departments spent more time actually listening to their employees on what they actually wanted to learn and then combining it with what the business actually needed, they probably wouldn't have to spend as much time recruiting because they would train the people who already love their company to then do the job that they have an opening for, thus saving themselves a crap load of money in recruitment,
0: yes, yes, and it's yep, logical, yes. isn't it? I want to go. <laughs> it's super, super, logical, super obvious. But I do. I have to go back to this because I can hear employers saying, "This is what I hear all the time." Are you, are you, are you saying improve my L and D for college graduates, or are you saying this could be someone who doesn't have a college degree, who's a high schooler, who we can train for 150 hours in in you know basic in the basic technical skills they're going to need to use and then we dump them into dump is not the right word we, we help place them in a company with a supportive environment and a mentor are you saying that a high schooler if if they're put through that sort of uh, program and process is 75% more likely to be successful than a college graduate
1: let's be really clear here it's very important that you Like that start comes from very specific organizations with very specific individuals. I can put anyone through training. I can turn around to you and I can Mm -hmm. say, Hannah, come and do the cybersecurity analyst course. Let's do it. But if you're not interested in cybersecurity, you will not be successful in cybersecurity. And where I'm I'm going with that is less around, um, it's anyone can do anything they put their mind to. Anyone. It's, and if I wanted to become a psychologist, I could go and become a psychologist. I'd have to go back to uni for the fourth time, but I could do it because why not? But the point that I'm getting at here is we are so fixated on the idea of somebody having a university degree because that in our minds as a society dictates success from an education point of view. But why? There are plenty of, and I have plenty of friends and family of mine. In fact, I am the first person in my family to go to university and to graduate. The first person, my dad went to a technical tapes for farming and my mum was a nurse. And in those days, that wasn't classed as a university education. So the point that I'm getting at here is why do we have to go and put ourselves into hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt when the opportunity for us as individuals because it's, 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 it's us as a society driving this. Because then employers listen. If we then go and spend the time to become as technically knowledgeable as humanly possible and we don't have a university degree but we can do our job far better than every other Tom, Dick, and Harry, why wouldn't an employer want to hire us? And I think the thing that gets like... Uh, a lot of hr managers hot under the collar when we talk about you know getting rid of this this ridiculous need for everybody to have a university degree is because when you're a recruiter it's very easy to vet someone if they have a university degree or not it's very easy to take the people that don't have a degree out of the pile it's very easy and and i and I will, I will say this, and I know I'll get um, kicked back for it, but I was a recruiter for a very long time, and I can assure you if there is something that makes my life easier trying to select a candidate, you're damn sure I'm going to do it, whether it's the right thing to do or not, because you're betting 50 resumes for one position. So the mentality also needs to shift yeah. too about how we think about education.
0: My my mind is going in so many different places. And I love the fact that you just said, really, anyone can do what they, you know, put their mind to. And if we train them properly and if they have a passion for it, they can succeed. But I, I do want to get really clear here just because of my own curiosity and also because of what, sure. what I'm hearing from employers. I'm really curious what you guys have seen as the results specifically of working with young students. I think in in the article that you sent me, you guys were concentrating some of this research was it, on 15 to 25 year olds, like That's young
1: right. I'm assuming some of are some of those um degree holders and some high school students. So we didn't actually collect that information. We only collected okay. age because we uh, we and again to the the point, we're not interested in adding any weight to whether you need a university degree to be successful in this or not what we did see was a significant uptick in engagement from those those youth and i call them youth but whatever from gen z let's call them gen z um, from the from gen zers in the technology space they were far, they were they were able to pick up the skills themselves quicker than uh, comparatively speaking and i'll and i'll talk about the group holistically they were able to pick up the skills of that training faster than millennials and it is exactly to your point Hannah because they are digital natives because they are they have grown up with the internet the whole time because they are more technologically advanced than every other you know than than millennials and that's that's just a fact like they have had more exposure to technology than the millennial generation did Um, I still remember when I was 14 and having a brick phone um, you know, and getting excited about having a brick phone. And, you know, Gen Zers have had touch screens pretty much their whole life. They've never had, you know, you've got to push the button six times to get to the letter E. But, <laughs> but so so the point that I'm kind of getting at here is um, Gen Zers in general tend to be able to pick up technology skills faster than, than, you know, other generation. But again, it comes back to the psychology of the individual. I can't, I can lead, it's the, it, and it's the same concept of I can lead a horse to water, but if they don't want to drink, then they can't drink. And so what's important for us as we think about Gen Zers, as they come into the, the workforce is this ridiculous need for everybody to have a university degree is going to go very quickly. And the reason for that is because Gen Zers don't need four years to learn something. They need 150 hours to learn something. I so appreciate
0: you clarifying that, and I, I definitely don't want to put either this concept or the, the experiment or anything in a box, but that helps bring clarity to me and hopefully to employers who hear this concept is, let me kind of just extrapolate what I'm hearing from you and you tell me if this is right. Number one, you guys have done research showing that a 15 to 25-year-old or a general Zer. Is able and, and not just a Gen Zer, but this is what you know the research was was showing that a Gen yep. Zer is able in 150 hours to develop meaningful, hireable proficiencies in a digital yep. skill set of some type, whether it's cybersecurity or analytics or whatnot. And then yep. if they work with an organization that's committed to helping them actually succeed, they pair them with a mentor, they have guidance. That organization is invested in them then that Gen Zer has a high probability of succeeding in the organization as a an employee who is equally as as trained, as skilled, as um as hireable as someone with a university degree, if not more. Is that what I'm hearing yes. you say? That is correct. That is fascinating. <laughs> that is wait, that that, that is mind <laughs> that is mind-blowingly like every single employer needs to hear that like that that is if if an employer can embrace that concept and say what can we do to be a, to be a mentor and an apprentice to the younger generation to the generation entering the workforce and can and, and can we just eliminate this this nonsensical degree requirement and can we find high potential high school, even middle school, like start grooming middle schoolers to, to learn these skills that will develop hireable proficiencies. Like imagine how much incredible talent, what that what that would do to the talent pool, what that would do to the, the, the creativity at work. I mean, so this is a complete tangent, but another shower thought that I had the other day was a four-year university degree does everything in its power to continue to prolong a lack of creativity and innovation for most degrees, right? I mean, you're you're sitting there in another four years of being taught from a textbook or from a PowerPoint from a native analog professor most of the time who is teaching you this is the right way to do things. So in, in essence, if you remove the four-year degree and you have high schoolers learning whatever proficiency it is, you're in tapping creative potential that is just simply not gonna not gonna exist for most
1: university degree holders. So yes, absolutely. But also it's not just Gen Zen Hano. This is also really fantastic for career changes. So we know this works. It it's already working with our our government. We work we have significant stand standing with our Canadian government clients and they're already in there this model works. We have the evidence to show it. Um, it you know, we work very closely with EY Canada. And again, this model works. We know it works. And we know that it is useful and helpful and a very, very easy solution for organizations to solve their tech talent problems. They just need to think about it. And again, to my earlier point, they just need to be open-minded to trying something different and seeing how it works for them.
0: I have to ask, are you, so you guys are in Australia and Canada. Is that correct? Are you in
1: the U.S. market? So we, we've just uh, launched in the United Kingdom and we do have a stance in the United States. It's not as heavy as it is in Canada. Okay. I, do you know of any other...
0: Organization that's even doing this sort of work in the u s
1: No, so what we're talking about here is a combination of consultation recruitment, and training um with you as me is a very interesting organization we don't we don't fit into one box we're not a recruiter, we're not a trainer, we're not a psychometrics assessment we're not you know we're not one or the other. We are all of those things. Um, And the, the and that's where this concept of human asset creation comes from. It's this idea of understanding a person from a fundamental point of view, aligning into something that they're interested in and that they want to grow in, finding them, you know, giving them the training that they need to be successful, and then finding them meaningful employment within that space. Now we focus specifically on underrepresented groups because the company was founded in Australia. It's a veteran company. We were founded in Australia by our CEO. Am- Tomo. And the company set out to change the way with which the Australian market viewed veteran talent. And this was seven years ago he started the company. Um, We then expanded into Canada in 2020 and we've had a ridiculous amount of success here because the Canadian um, mindset around talent and the fact that it isn't behaving the way that it should be behaving is far more progressive. And you asked me before You know a comparative difference between Australia and Canada, and and I'm I'm probably I would say a little bit more comfortable saying this to you um, now than at our first conversation because I'd only really spent a little bit of time in Canada. But Canada itself is far more progressive, far more open-minded, and far more willing to try something outside of the box when the problem they've been trying to solve for the last 12 months isn't working, or the solutions aren't working. And so, the reason that we expanded into Canada is because the can outside of the fact that I love Canadians and they're all very friendly and it's great. Um, Canada itself, as a society and as a culture, is far more accepting to try new things different ways. And what we're hoping will happen is, as we continue to to expand here and we continue to drive, um, you know, our the our uh, initiatives into the directions that we want those initiatives to go and we continue to work with our partnered organizations like Ernest & Young and the you know, Canadian government, we are going to see a shift in Canada to change the way we actually think about talent more broadly. And again, like this notion of moving away from university degrees is key. This notion of looking at a person because of their data and not because of the bias you have is key. And I, I said I was at a conference um, recently in Vancouver, and I had a young guy walk up to me, and I said to him, I was like, "What's the greatest challenge for you as a Gen Zer and and someone who is the future, the future of work?" Because let's be clear here, Gen Z is the future of work. And he said to me, "Well, I might be the future of work, but I don't have a seat at the table, and no one's listening to anything that I have to say." And what that did to me, to me as, a, as a leader and as someone in a position of authority, I said, why are we not listening to the people that are literally about to change, like drive, you know, the employment for the next 50 years? We aren't having those conversations. We aren't understanding what it is that motivates Gen Zers, that brings them into the workforce. And this notion of Gen Z doesn't work hard, I'm sorry, but that's a load of crock. Gen Z just needs to be engaged the right way. They need to be intellectually stimulated in a way that allows them to feel like they are consistently growing. And Gen Z isn't the generation you throw a bunch of money at. They're not interested in that. What they want is something that's going to give them meaningful impact, intellectual stimulation, and the stability that they crave from an employer. So true.
0: they so true. And And the... The, the Gen Zer you ran into in Vancouver is 100% nail in the head accurate. And I think last time that you and I spoke, it was you, you mentioned something about a youth steering committee, which yeah. is brilliant. I, I actually, um, you may want to check back in some of these episodes that I've done. I interviewed a gentleman named Reg Athwal, and he is the the managing partner of the Family Business Academy out of Dubai. Mm-hmm. His his family's owned, um, He well, He first of all, he works with like the wealthiest family businesses in across the globe. But basically, they just recently launched a youth advisory board where they're in literal, like the only people on the advisory board um, are ages 14 to 18, I believe. It's all Gen Zers. And they're literally asking these Gen Zers for advice on how to run the company, not just you know, not just uh, having, having a nice to have little make us look good. You know, we've got some youth on our board. They're literally taking the advice and the direction of these youth on how to make business decisions, and it is paying off for them. And anyway, just this idea of youth steering committees, of, of council built from native digitals is what I believe going to be a massive tree of a forward thinking business. Uh, you know, starting in 2022, but in the next few years, we're, we're going to begin seeing this mass extinction of analog functioning companies who don't understand that the next generation is not just the future leaders, just like any other generation, but is literally wired to think differently, which means businesses have to work, think and play differently, whether that's employer, um, as an employer, or even for customers. And of course, the consumer market is moving even faster than the employment side in, in some cases. Absolutely. So anyway, yeah. I, I think this idea of just the youth steering committee making this a, a common practice is something I will preach until the day I die. Of am just, how, how do we make sure that the next generation has a voice and not just like we were talking about diversity kind of to to land this plane, not just giving the minority a seat at the board table, a silent seat just to say we've checked the box. How do we give them an influential seat, take their advice and their opinion seriously and say this listening to this this uh, perspective could make or break our company's future in really meaningful ways, whether that's a neurodivergent person, a, 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 a Judd Zeer, or someone who's had experience. I mean, they, uh, plenty of people's experience is completely valid as well. So, but, but the key here being, how do we take insight from every single perspective and not just check a box and, and, and just assume our work is done?
1: Put your ego aside. It's as simple as that. Put your ego aside and actually listen to the people sitting in front of you. And then for the love of God, ask questions, please. That's it. It's like genuinely, it's the same as how do we hire, you know, how do we create more inclusive hiring practices for neurodivergent individuals? How do we create more inclusive hiring practices for indigenous individuals? Shut up and listen to them is the simplest solution and actually ask them the question. Because nobody is. Nobody is actually having the conversation. And I, I love that, you know, and, and this was, I loved our uh, original conversation. I got very passionate about, you know, um, and youth and Gen Z. And it, but it's the same for neurodivergent. It's the same for Indigenous. It's the same for military spouses and veterans. We also need to be thinking about how we actually work day to day. So I am a former military spouse of seven years. Um, I. If you looked at my my resume before I started working it with you, with me, it was horrible. My resume was not the thing that helped me become successful. What helped me become successful was the fact that I consistently was able to follow through and do my work well. And it didn't matter where I was. But do you know the funniest part about COVID? We've learned that we need to be able to work remotely. And actually what's happening is people are starting to realize that they don't need to be in an office to be productive and adding value to an organization. So in answer to your question, Hannah, the first thing, just listen. The second, ask the questions. And again, it comes back to that point of how about we be open-minded to trying something completely different? Because, and I've said this, and I, I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it, Gen Z is the future of work. There is no FOW analysis piece required here. They are the future of work. And if we want to bring our organizations into the 28th century and on to 2050 as we continue to go and grow as, you know, organizations, then we need to be listening to the people that are going to be building, running, operating and making that company function in 2050. We will land
0: that plane right there i could not have said it better and i'm gonna quote quote kate mcgregor shut up and listen i love that i love that quote so much because it's so true it is so true i i cannot tell I you did, how much i, I enjoyed did warn this. you i was Katie. very
1: i was gonna say hannah i did warn you i was very blunt in how i deliver things so <laughs>
0: and i am so grateful because literally Bluntness is what we need more in the world. We need blunt, courageous agreement and disagreement, clashes, collisions, and and the ability to come together courageously and say, "This is a vision for the future. This is how we create 2050. <laughs> how we create this for ourselves and what and what we want the future of work to look like." It's through conversations yeah. like this, and I am seriously so grateful for you, and and for opening my mind to to some new ways of thinking. So. Thank you so much. You are welcome back anytime. Let's continue this conversation. And you're brilliant. I'm so
1: grateful to have oh, you in my life. Thank you very much, Tana. This has been a very, like, as, as I'm sure you've worked out, i very passionate about what we talked about today. And, and this has definitely been something that I've thoroughly enjoyed. So thank you so much for having me involved in your podcast. And hopefully, I will get to come back and share a, a lot more of the research findings that with you, with me finds.
0: Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.